Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We didn't want September to end without acknowledging its National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. It's not an easy topic to talk about, but it's an important one. Today, where we live, we'll talk to a clinical psychologist and find out ways to support family or friends who are struggling. If you've lost someone to suicide, it's a pain that is hard to describe. Many people don't know how to respond to a parent, spouse, or coworker who has experienced this loss. I want to introduce you to a Connecticut father who helps local residents who've lost someone to suicide. Joining us now on Zoom is Gary Giannini. He's a facilitator of a support group in Avon, again, for people that have lost a loved one to suicide, and he's been doing this now for seven years. Gary, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, thank you Lucy, and it's, it's a pleasure to be here and have an opportunity to talk. I want to let our listeners know you can also join the conversation, especially if you're looking for support groups, if you've experienced this kind of loss. The number 888-720-9677. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And we also want to share the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at one 800 273 8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. And there's also a crisis text line uh, that provides crisis support 24-7. And that's uh, text 741-741. Text hello to that number uh, for um, help. Now, uh, Gary, again, welcome to our show. I understand that you lost your son to suicide several years ago. Can you tell us about him? Well, yes, I'm, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me as, as well. Um, that I'm retired now, but I'm, I'm married, and we have two children, a daughter and a son, Michael. Uh, Michael died April 17, 2011, from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Now, his death was a shock to us, but it wasn't a surprise. We had worried about him for 10 years. And the reasons, the whys that he took his life uh, most likely come from uh, an accumulation of many things over many years. There's no simple answer. Mm. Can you tell us? And there are no words, Mm. really, that can capture the pain or the feelings that I felt on that day when those uh, two policemen knocked on our front door and said, Mr. Giannini, may we come in? It's about your son, Michael. Mm. You said that uh, you had, you and your family had worried about Michael for 10 years prior to his death. Uh, I understand that uh, he was a remarkable son. I, I looked up his obituary and just reading how you described him, his creative writing skills, the fact that he was a crossword puzzle expert. It was a devastating yeah. <laughs> loss to you and your family. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a... Uh... We make it a point that uh, we're not going to let his last act define him. And I tell everybody that I see what a creative kid he was, what a talented kid he was, what a great sense of humor he had, and uh, actually how how brave he was in many ways that uh, we might not consider brave, but for him it was. Brave to move out to Los Angeles and pursue a career in screenwriting, Gary? 
he was uh, he was always excelled in uh, in in school. He did well. He got a you know a scholarship to New York University, an academic one. He got accepted to the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, California, which is a, con- a conservatory. It's a very difficult program to get in. He's very proud of those accomplishments, and he worked really hard out there. Um, and um, unfortunately, it. Uh, you know, a lot of things came together well after school finished out there for him. Mm. You said that nothing could prepare you for when those uh, police officers came to your door. Tell me how your community responded, people around you uh, when Michael died. And what did you need at that time, Gary? Okay, well, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's, it's something, like you say, you can't even prepare for. As much as I might have had a background and, and people at risk and, and and working with grief groups and things, it's just you just can't you can't uh, you can't describe it. The people in our neighborhood were pretty good. Uh, they were very supportive. We we're close with our church community, and they uh, we made a point and uh, to let everybody know what was going on and included his struggles with anxiety and depression and his memorial service along with the other parts of his life, his great accomplishments and what he meant to us as well. I think the thing that that comes up for people is oftentimes uh, they don't know what to make. They don't know what to make of the suicide itself. And they seem sometimes uh, often preoccupied with, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to do the wrong thing? Um, you know, am I going to upset, are they going to upset me? So we had to, after this, I think um, most people, I think, were very supportive. And we much appreciated the people who actually took time to send a personal card or stop by and drop off food or check in with us along the way. So I think overall, uh, we were very fortunate in, in that sense. Mm. You said that he passed away in 2011. When we talk about uh, suicide, even today in 2020, it's a topic that is hard to talk about because people don't know um, unless they've experienced this uh, in their Mm -hmm. family or a close friend. But there's also a lot of stigma around suicide and mental illness. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. uh, what made you and your family okay to to talk about this in 2011, to be open about his death? Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. There is a lot of stigma, and and oftentimes there's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, blame and shaming that comes in. Many people see suicide as some kind of moral failing, and uh, and also, you know, they, uh, and I think it's human nature. Sometimes people uh, sort of look and say, "Well, there must have been something wrong in the family, or there must have been trouble here." They're looking for an, a reason to rationalize in their mind, what in a lot of ways is an irrational act for people. What helped, what made us do this is we had, we, some people in our church knew of his struggles over the years, and we knew there were other families in our church that had, had similar struggles with their, their kids and, and all adults as well. And we just said, you know, they're going to know, they're going to wonder what happened. Let's be out with it and let's be open about uh, talking about mental health 
let's be open about talking about the struggles people have with depression or anxiety, because people on the outside of that don't realize how debilitating those kinds of things are and what effort and energy and courage it takes for people who are suffering from those just to get up and face the day. You're hearing Gary Giannini here on Where We Live. Uh, He's joining us today on Zoom. He's a facilitator of a support group for people that have lost a loved one to suicide. Uh, He lost his son, Michael, to suicide back in in 2011. Uh, You can join our conversation, especially if you have a a family member, a close friend that has died by suicide, and you may have questions about support groups. Uh, The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter uh, at where we live. Uh, Gary, I wanted to ask you about grief because uh, you know I'd lost uh, both my parents in the last couple of years, and I know that grief shows up in moments when you're not expecting it. And yeah. it's good to hear that you had support um, soon after your son's death. But uh, throughout that following year or two, can you talk about how you processed your grief? Well. Uh, let's say the very, the very first year was uh, pretty much we're in shock, uh, numb. Uh, I had some, some people that were, and I'll speak to my experience as well, is I had people that I knew from before all of this uh, who would sit and listen to me. And they just let me talk. And they had had sort of life-changing experiences as well in their families and stuff. And I basically told them, because I, I, I didn't, haven't mentioned it yet, but my, I'm a clinical social worker by training, so I had a lot of background myself in working with support groups and, and doing all those things you're supposed to do. But when it happens to you, it's very different. So I needed other people to listen to me, and I needed other people to be able to sit there with me and I think the biggest message I can give to those people out, outside is, you know, if you can listen to somebody, if you can hold their hand without trying to fix anything or without trying to uh, say a whole lot, it goes a long way to just being there for somebody. Because a lot of times we're uncomfortable. We know you're uncomfortable, but we don't know what to do either. So... If you can be there with me, which, which I much appreciated, I had two people that I, I treasure there, that, uh, that their presence during that time was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's, uh, and I made a point to talk about my son. I didn't try and hide it. I didn't try and, uh, um, uh, so to speak, not come out, you know, like it was one of those things. It's like, no, I'd make a point to tell people. You know, if they'd ask me, you know, now I chose my times when I did that. And I chose the people I did that to, but the people I was close to, um, who may not have been known in the beginning, I let them know. And that made our conversation a little bit easier and also sensitized them that, uh, maybe their comments in the future, they, they might need to process a little bit before they say something they might do in another group. Mm. So that's, that's what was helpful for me in the beginning among other things. Mm-hmm. so I, I mentioned earlier that you've been uh, 
doing this support group now for several years. Tell us about the process. Why did you decide to create this support group? I believe you've been meeting at the Avon Free Public Library. Yes. And what is what is it like for people who are thinking about maybe I need to go to a support group? I've tried to process <laughs> this grief and it's just not working. Uh, can you describe right. what it's like? Well, sure, sure. I can I can tell you a little bit about that too. And and we got to that. I got to that. My wife helped me in the first few years, and now I've moved on to sort of take over the the, the leadership of that. But uh, it's um it's it's open. It's very specific. It's open to people people have lost someone to suicide uh, and everyone also has their other reasons for being there as well. Uh, oftentimes it's just, they come there to better understand and, and to be understood and find some measure of hope and comfort. We're not there to be anybody's mental health professional or grief expert. We're all, uh, we're all more or less in the same boat and accept each other for who we are and our profound loss. My role there is to ensure the group is a safe place to talk and to cry and to remember. Often, and people tell us this, often the, the best thing we do is listen without judgment or criticism or platitudes. Mm-hmm. We know there's no few words that are going to simply make us feel better. So when they come into that group, they trust that I know what I'm talking about in a lot of ways. I don't have any, all the answers for, for sure, but I can relate my experience a little bit. So the group itself, just to know a little bit about that, is when we were meeting, we meet by Zoom now. When we were meeting, uh, we had a you know, room over there that was fairly um, uh, you know, off the beaten path. So we had some confidentiality. Everything that's said in there is, is like many support groups, is confidential. But we go around, the, we, we meet. I have a little ritual I do in the beginning. We introduce ourselves as I did today a little bit about uh, who, who, who we lost and a little bit about ourselves. And then we, uh, it's sort of the topic of the day, whatever somebody brings in. Uh, this time of year, for example, we'll be coming into holiday seasons for people and you can take your religious, um, you know, sex, whichever one it is that comes up and what this time of year means for those people. And we can, we talk a little about that as, not only as they get into it, but preparing for it and afterwards. We have Thanksgiving that comes up, Christmas. For some people, I'm always aware of the date of the death and also the person's birthday that died because I want to be attuned to that because all of us know in that group and, and uh, that as we get closer to those dates, you know, something changes a little bit, although we may not be aware of it in our head. It reflects maybe in our body or a little bit of agitation sometimes. Um, but in the beginning, you know, every day seems like the, that one day. Mm. So we, we, we allow people to just talk in there. We don't give a lot of unsolicited advice. We try not to give any, actually. We always get permission, but we let people talk. We're not there to judge anybody. We just need a place to talk and to know you're not alone, which is a big thing. Mm. Oftentimes, what I found, Lucy, is that, and I'll share this little story, brief story, I promise. When I first was going to start this group, uh, this gentleman I knew lived out this way and, he, and great guy. He met with me at the friendlies, you know, we're talking a little bit and he, he said, Oh, that sounds great. You know? And he said, but do you think you'll get anybody out here? 
And so I, I said, well, you know, they used to say that about gay people, that they didn't have anybody in their community until one person came out and then another person came out and so on. And I've had at least 70 people come through in that 70 years, uh, seven years, pardon me. Mm. So I hope that explains a little bit about what we do. I always interview people before they come to a group too, because I want to get a sense of where they are. And it also provides a little comfort level to him. It takes a little courage to go talk about things you may not talk to anybody else, including your family members about, to a group of strangers. But we all have very similar circumstances. I want to take a call. Uh, Carrie is calling in from Middletown. Carrie, you're on the show. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I appreciate the conversation this morning and just wanted to um, share that the support groups, I think, um, are very helpful for a lot of us that are survivors of suicide loss. I think um, I think there's a lot of us isolation in it, and um, that's the hardest part to get through is how isolated you feel in um, having been a survivor of someone's suicide loss. Mm-hmm. Carrie, did you want to respond to Carrie? Yes, I think so. I think it's a, uh, a lot of people after the memorial service and the, sort of the, the things you do for many other fu- funerals, um, sometimes, sometimes you get off their radar and because uh, they don't know what to say after that. You know? And for us, the survivors, we're thinking, who can we talk to? Because a lot of people don't come out and... So it is can be isolating, and we wonder where did you where did our friends go? Well, it's a uh, so it's a uh, it and that's the worst I think for people is not only do you feel alone, in fact, you become alone because people have sort of backed off about thinking you need any more attention at that point. My guest today here on Where We Live is Gary Giannini. He's a facilitator of a support group in Avon, Connecticut, for people that have lost a loved one to suicide. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathansha. We're going to continue our conversation after the break. And again, if you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800 273 8255. That's 1 800 273 TALK. If you're looking for more information on support groups for family and friends who've lost a loved one, you can join our conversation, 888 720 9677. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk to a clinical psychologist, and we hope to hear from you too. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Nationally, suicide rates have been increasing in a majority of states. That's according to the CDC uh, when looking at numbers from 2007 to 2018. And the CDC reported suicides among children and young people, that's ages 10 to 24, have increased by 57 percent in that time frame. If you've experienced a loss of a loved one or a friend to suicide, did you know where to turn for help? You can join our conversation. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. We're talking about suicide loss today with my guest on Zoom, Gary Giannini, a facilitator of a support group for people who've lost a loved one to suicide. He's been uh, leading this support group in Ava 
gone for several years. And uh, joining us now on Zoom is Karen Steinberg-Gallucci, a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at UConn Medical School. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's nice to be here. I wanted to clarify that you're not in a position to offer clinical advice on the air. So if listeners who might have questions about their own clinical condition or of a loved one, they should contact their health care provider. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, Karen, uh, from your perspective uh, on Gary's story as well as giving support to people who've lost someone in this way, uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are when you heard uh, Gary share um, the things that people said and did for him after losing his son. Yes, I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to comment also and on what Gary shared and just to say what a what an incredible service that he's providing, you know, by um, facilitating a group like this. It's so important and valuable for survivors and people who have been through this type of really devastating loss. Um, uh, it's considered to be a catastrophic loss, um, similar to being in a concentration camp. That's the sort of the level of devastation that people often experience. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's different than, you know, maybe other types of losses and grief. There are many elements that can make it much more challenging. People can have developed, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or complex grief reactions. So all the things that Gary described are, you know, just, I, you know, I can't really say enough about it. You know, the thing that I thought was most important that he said he offered was to just be with people and listen to them, listen to their, their feelings, their thoughts, their stories, listen to them talk about their loved one that they lost tragically. That is an incredibly valuable gift for, for, for anyone really, but especially someone going through something like this, because many times people um, feel uncomfortable. As you said, they don't know what to say. They they feel anxious. Um, I heard, I've heard someone say one time in relation to um, this type of loss that when they told someone about it, they, the person physically backed up several steps, you know, probably, you know, un, unawares. But it's the kind of thing that people, you know, feel uncomfortable about. They don't know how to respond and, and may, um, you know, create more distance, which is, is not what the person needs. Um, you know, what they need is to feel supported and cared for and um, for someone not to necessarily fix the problem because nothing can fix it. Nothing can, can go back in time and, and change what happened. But, um, but listening and being with someone with their feelings, you know, completely is, um, is a big, step and something that um, will help them in uh, what we call like metabolizing or processing these very, um, very deep, intense emotions. I asked Gary earlier about uh, stigma and why uh, he and his family felt it was important to talk about this openly. And I'm wondering if you can share, uh, Karen, from your perspective, there has been more attention on mental health in recent years, but does that stigma, is it still something that is very strong when people hear about suicide? Or are people more understanding when they, when they think about, you know, the fact that you know, mental health is an issue uh, that many people will experience? And uh, while not everyone um, 
everyone suffers in different ways, but I'm just curious in terms of stigma, are people understanding now that this is not something to blame a family or an individual for? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Lucy. Um, and you're right. You know, I think we have come a long way in terms of, um, you know, some destigmatization around mental health issues. There are a number of, you know, a lot of efforts over the years, uh, parity laws that try to, you know, um, equate, you know, mental health issues with just with other medical problems. Um, but there's still, you know, there still is stigma and there still are, you know, uh, places where people are uncomfortable, uncomfortable talking about mental health issues of their own or loved ones, even though at this point we know that, um, you know, the prevalence is so high that almost everyone, you know, either themselves or um, someone they know has has struggled or is struggling with some type of mental health issue. Um, and uh, when it comes to suicide, I think, yes, I think there's, there's even more stigma and there's um, there's, yeah, somehow this implicit, uh, it has to do with our psychology, you know, sort of that we, we want to have explanations for things. Mm -hmm. We want things to make sense. It, it, it applies to many other areas too, like rape victims. Um, you know, we want things to make sense. And so if something bad happens, well, there must, someone must be to blame. And then, you know, it just sort of is, is neater psychologically, but you know, the truth is we really, um, we don't understand, um, you know, about uh, the causes, the specific causes of suicide. There are a lot of different factors. Um, and as Gary said very well, you know, it's often the product of a, um, a state of mind that is not, not rational. Um, people who have attempted suicide and survived will often say, you know, I'm so glad I, I, I lived and I wasn't thinking clearly. Um, when people leave suicide notes, people sometimes think, oh, that's helpful. Often it's it's not. It doesn't necessarily explain things. So it's very important for people to not, um, you know, it's, it's hard, easier said than done, not blame themselves or feel like it was, it, they caused it or somehow they didn't take care of this person enough. That's That's really not the way we think about it. You know, it's like you don't, you wouldn't blame yourself if someone you knew died of cancer or heart attack or things like that. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live. Again, we're talking about uh, suicide and how to support uh, people who've experienced this loss, whether it's a, a family member or a close friend. Uh, Joy's calling in from Southington. Joy, you're on the show. Hi, good morning. Um, I just, my mother um, died of suicide in 1992, and which 28 years ago, and she was older. Um, she was 68, and often people focus on the younger folks who are managing the mental health, the struggles with mental health, and older people who are often resistant to psychological support or medication or do not get the full attention, um, or at least that was my experience. And so um, I'd like to hear more about that and what what is being done to help older people who are really struggling with mental health issues and um, who are possible risks 
for suicide. Joy, Thank you. Joy, that was a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. And again, we're sorry to hear about the loss of your mother. Uh, that's a really important point, uh, Karen, especially when we think about how people have had to isolate uh, these last few months because of this pandemic and the dangers of isolation, whether it's uh, um, someone who's younger, but especially if they're, if they're elderly, Karen. Yes, it, it's a it's a really important um, question and comment. And um, it's true. This um, pandemic that we're all facing has been uh, very difficult for 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 all of us, but um, especially for people who may struggle with mental health issues. And we've certainly seen increases in you know anxiety and depression, in um, substance abuse and alcohol use, um, and um, and certainly the um, elderly are. Uh, a group we need to pay attention to. We know that they're at risk for depression and other mental health issues. Um, uh, and they often, they may, as Joy said, may sort of not have grown up in a, um, you know, in a culture where um, seeking, uh, talking about these issues was okay or getting help for those these issues. You know, sometimes the message I've heard is just, you know, keep things at home or don't don't air your dirty laundry these kinds of ideas it's just not something that was really encouraged um or being much more self-reliant you know you can solve these things yourself if you if you ask for help it means you're weak um and we like to really now kind of try to reverse that and talk about the courage it takes to speak out and to um talk about the struggles people have and that that's really a courageous thing to do especially when there there are a lot of um, ways that people can be helped and get better. You're hearing Karen Steinberg-Gallucci, clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at UConn Medical School. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or share a comment on our Facebook page as we talk about, talk about suicide loss. Uh, Barbara's calling in from Woodbury. Barbara, you're on the show. Oh, hello. Um, thank you for taking my call, Lucy. Um, the first thing I wanted to say was to Gary, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. And, you know, I go to a group um, that's run by ASFP, I think it is, Amer- Amer- whatever, Association for Suicide. I think it's the American Association for Suicide Prevention. And um, I've been going for 15 years. My daughter wow. died. Um, almost 16 years ago now, and it's very hard to go to go to a group. And I I found that um, I had to go to something that specifically dealt with suicide. And I think this is pr- something that's probably true for you know whatever happens. You know, there's no general thing. There's each one is a little bit different. And to find the right group is very important, just like it is to find the right. Um, psychologist or psychiatrist to help you. And, um, you know, I've become friends. It's not the way you want to make friends, obviously, in a group like this, but you find that you do. You know, anytime that we do anything with other people, we, we get to know them and they get to know us and it becomes a support system, not just at your monthly meetings, but, you know, in your in your life in general. And, I encourage people that have lost somebody to, to do this because it, it is helpful. And like Gary said, in the beginning, you're, you're practically numb and everybody's journey is, uh, 
is different. You can't say this is what's going to happen and that's what's going to happen. It is individual for each of us. And although it never goes away, um, I don't believe that, you know, you get over it. You don't, but you do learn how to cope with it and you, you manage your feelings. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing that he's doing, and I, I encourage people to do it. Thank you, Barbara, and, and sorry to hear about the loss of your daughter. Uh, Gary Giannini, who's with us, he is a facilitator for a support group in the Avon, uh, Connecticut area. Gary, did you want to respond to Barbara? Yes, well, uh, thank you for those words. And uh, as, I've, uh, as I tell people over the years, when they say, well, why are you doing this? Somebody helped me in the beginning. And I went to another group and I went to a couple of different groups and all those people, they didn't have a, you know, a mental health background or any professional training. They were, they were everyday people who made a, made a, made a commitment, you know, to help others. And so if I can be of service to other people, you know, then I feel like I'm doing one, good small thing for other people. So yes, reach out. There is help out there. And whether it's a support group or a therapist or your um, your pastor or your faith community or, or a family friend or somebody special, says, uh, let people know. Let people know because they're out there and they're willing to help. Uh, Barbara mentioned AFSP, that's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I found a great resource online, preventsuicidect.org, which lists uh, support groups around our state uh, with uh, phone numbers as well. Uh, uh, Gary, for people who want to reach out to you, what's the email address that they can use? Sure. It's sbsg87 at gmail. Uh, thank you, Gary. And we'll be sure to forward that to uh, listeners uh, who call in. Uh, Karen, I wanted to go back to you because this is Suicide Awareness Prevention Awareness Month. And when we think about how to help people who are struggling or if there are warning signs that we should be uh, looking out for, can you can you give us some guidance there? Sure. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, there are some myths about suicide. For example, sometimes people are worried if they, you know, talk to someone about it, it's going to push them to um, to commit suicide, you know, or so they, they don't bring it up. And, and that's, that's really not the case. The best thing really is to um, uh, make a space where people can talk about how they're feeling. We know that people have these kind of thoughts. We know that um, uh, certain um, certain life events can trigger these thoughts or make someone more at risk of acting on them. Um, um, some um, uh, some history of mental health issues can be a risk factor. Uh, losses uh, could be a romantic breakup, a job loss. It, you know, some major change in life status, a divorce. Um, these things can put someone who may have been struggling into a much more vulnerable state. So that's why it is important to pay attention. If you notice someone seems more withdrawn, uh, talking about death, um, you know, sort of making uh, like saying goodbye in a certain way or giving possessions away. But sometimes people don't um, 
don't kind of give off any of these clues or warning signs. And I think it's important to say that as much as we want to do everything we can to try to identify and um, connect people with services, that we can't always prevent um, a suicide as much as we would want to. I think that's important um, for the survivors to know that because they are left with a lot of, um, you know, guilt and regret and, and uh, sadness. And it's important for them to know that it's, this is not a function of their not having done enough. Uh, Gary, uh, we wanted to ask you when uh, if people are listening and they are struggling and have gone through a recent uh, loss uh, uh, to suicide, if someone they loved has died by suicide, you know, what would you tell them? Well, I would tell them, I guess, to take it slow in the beginning. I think sometimes people don't know what to do, and I'll, I'll phrase it maybe not as articulate, but there's a little you feel a little crazy sometimes, and I think whatever it is to cut yourself a little slack, you know, be compassionate with yourself. You're going through, I think, um, a major trauma, as I think Karen talked about earlier. Is a major trauma. You can't be expected to do all those things you used to do. And you have to be open to um, not only accepting help, but asking for it. And I know that can be, seem like two jobs at that time. And it's, it's sometimes just getting out of bed is a big deal. What I would say is just back off a little bit. Take some time. I know some people, they go back to work right away, and then, then they're not. They, then, they, then they take time off. Uh, that's if they're able to. A lot of people these days with their, their jobs, you know, it, it's it's difficult. But I just say, cut yourself some slack, back off, take it slow, uh, and, you know, have, make some connections with people. You know, if somebody calls you, you may not get back to them, you know, at the moment. You don't have to. They should accept that you're not always going to call them. But at least allow some allow some people to help and I'll give you one example there just a little bit is sometimes we just don't want to deal with any of any anybody on the outside and so I appointed my brother a point person <laughs> direct all your emails and stuff to him and that way he can sort of filter through allow stuff to come to me as is because otherwise I would be I'm over I was overwhelmed just doing day-to-day types of things so that's that's about much as I can say. There is help out there, and just just know you're not crazy when you have all these feelings because you can have mixed feelings, opposite feelings at the same time about the person or yourself around these things, and that's not unnatural. Mm. So that's I, I think that's the best I can say about that. You're hearing Gary Giannini uh, here on Where We Live. Again, he's a facilitator of a support group for people that have lost a loved one to suicide. Also with us, Karen Steinberg-Gallucci, clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at UConn Medical Center. Uh, They're both going to stay with us uh, as we continue to talk about suicide loss. And again, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Here in Connecticut, you can also call 211, especially if you're looking for resources um, and help. Um, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. We'll be back after a short break. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about suicide loss with my guests, Karen Steinberg-Gallucci, clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at UConn Medical School. Also here with us, Gary Giannini, who facilitates a support group in Avon, Connecticut, for suicide loss. Uh, Karen, I was wondering when I saw that statistic in that CDC report that suicide has been increasing especially among children and young adults from 10 to 24. That that really surprised me. And then I was thinking as a parent, how do I even talk to my children about uh, suicide? And I'm wondering what what kinds of uh, suggestions you have for parents out there when we think about talking about this difficult topic. Yeah, it, it is a difficult topic, and it, but it's important to talk about. And, you know, depending on the age of your child, you might use different language or, um, you know, present different information, um, answer their questions. Uh, but, you know, by a certain point, children either have heard, heard about, you know, this term. They may, may know someone, have heard about someone who has died by suicide. They themselves may be having thoughts like this or feeling depressed or anxious. So the best thing really is to create, um, you know, an open channel, you know, where they feel that they can talk to you about anything at all and to let them know that it's okay. You know, in my clinical practice, I um, uh, provide psychotherapy and, and so many people have um, had the experience of not feeling that it was okay to talk about their feelings or to say when they were having a hard time um, or were told it's not okay to be angry or, um, or they should, you know, sort of buck up and um, just move on, move forward. So there, and there are all kinds of messages in our society about that too, that I think can be destructive and, and give people the message that their feelings aren't okay and that they're not okay because of these feelings. So I think that's a first step. And there are actually a lot of wonderful kind of early intervention and prevention programs that are being, you know, um, implemented in the schools all over Connecticut and the country, you know, that really try to teach this kind of emotional awareness, emotional expression. So, you know, helping people just even identify how they're feeling um, and things that they can do when they're feeling badly. Um, differentiating, you know, different types of emotions. And also what Gary has talked about a number of times, which is so important, is is reaching out for help um, when they're struggling and knowing that that's not only is it okay, but it's very, very important. So I think, again, the the message is uh, not um, do they know about this, but um, but yes, they do. And by a certain point, they, they, you know, they've certainly heard about it. And it's better to talk openly about it and give them a space. If they don't want to talk about it, that's okay. And the message can just be, you know, I'm here, you know, if you do, if you change your mind, or I'm, I'm interested, I'm interested in, you know, what you're thinking about and how you're feeling. When we look at that statistic again of suicide increasing uh, among this age group, uh, what do researchers know in terms of the rates of depression and anxiety among young people, Karen, that may be contributing to uh, this uh, percentage? Yes. So I want to just, you know, make a little point. It's just sort of a um, pet peeve of mine, but, um, you know, often sort of mental, you know, depression is sort of equated with suicide and, um, and while it's true that, you know, um, 
in many cases, um, you know, suicide is preceded by some, you know, mental health issue or depression. That is not always the case. So they are somewhat separate and, um, you know, we don't want to just sort of lump them together. Um, but you're right, depression, um, anxiety, we are seeing it on the rise in, in, uh, in children and adolescents. And we think it, you know, maybe a, a function of, you know, uh, stressors in our society, you know, children absorb, you know, what, what goes on around them. You know, we used to have this idea that they don't, you know, they don't understand things or they don't process them and we can just kind of protect them and shield them. But we know that that's not the case. Even very young children pick up on, you know, the anxiety or the grief in a family. And that's why it's very important when there's been a suicide loss in a family, um, uh, to really uh, encourage and, and make a space for children to talk about it, to explain it to them in terms that they can understand, to allow them to ask questions as much as they want, not to overload them with information if they're if they're not seeking that out, but just to but just to provide what they need. I've also spoken with people that you know were adults and you know, maybe a parent, they lost a parent to suicide, but they didn't know that that was the reason until they were like 25 years old. And just, but how they always knew there was something strange that everyone just kind of pushed under the rug and didn't talk about. And that created more problems for them. It would have been much better had people been more open and talked about it. We just have a few minutes left. I wanted to go back to Gary Giannini. Uh, Gary, I mentioned the pandemic earlier, and I'm wondering how these last six months has impacted the way your support group is able to help people because, you know, meeting in person isn't always best now. And so I'm wondering, are you doing digital Zoom conversations? Are you uh, calling people more often? Well, I do the... I, the, the I'm, I'm getting the calls every month from people looking looking for a group. I'm also, um, some people are sort of fed up with Zoom because they do that at work. And so they don't want to, my group, that's the only way we can uh, operate these days uh, because of the the, um, the levels we, the state has for certainly in public buildings and the town buildings. So I, I'm, I'm not doing more calls in terms of out, outreach, that type of stuff, because I think the word's out there, but I am getting calls and that's pretty, been pretty steady. Um, and just to share a little bit, one of the things that I've noticed, which is different from the early years, is more families are calling in now with um, have lost somebody that were teenagers. That hadn't happened until the last year. So that's part of a change as well, and uh, which is unfortunate. Um, so that's... Um, that, that's how we're, we've been moving along at this point. But mm. people, for some people, it's helpful. For others, it, it's not. But I, I, I do what I can do. Mm. Well, Gary, it sounds like you're a great resource uh, for families, and you've been doing this for so long. And we thank you uh, for coming on to tell us a little bit about your son and the work that you're doing. Uh, Gary Giannini, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. I wanted to go back uh, to uh, Karen again. Uh, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, uh, Karen uh, Steinberg-Gallucci over at uh, UConn uh, Medical School, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, also a clinical psychologist. I've mentioned some hotline numbers. I mentioned 211. But in closing, where are some places that listeners can go for more resources if they want to learn more and, and need uh, more support? 
Um, so in terms of, um, you know, services, you had mentioned 211 is a great resource for finding all sorts of, you know, not only support groups that are available, but mental health services and treatment programs at different levels of care. Um, there is also, um, Connecticut has a, a, a DEMIS, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, um, is, um, you know, lists information about um, hospitals and other treatment programs around the state. The Connecticut Behavioral Health Partnership is another place to find providers, you know, in your area. Um, there are also some excellent um, kind of websites for information on suicide prevention and information and education. I think the um, there's a wonderful, for, for coping with loss, there's a wonderful handbook that was um, developed for survivors of suicide. It's on the um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention handbook. Um, and then there are some wonderful books that I think are, are very helpful to people when they're able to concentrate enough to read, but things that really speak to the experience. And Gary, I'm sure you know about these two mm -hmm. that speak to the experience of suicide loss, the, the, um, the sort of unexpected and um, traumatic nature, uh, you know, the idea of not being able to say goodbye to the person, things that we, you know, you know, normally would do as part of our. And Karen, um, we'll you know. share that list of books. I believe sure. you shared it with our producer, uh, Tess Terrible. Okay. But thank you, Karen Steinberg Gallucci, for You're joining welcome. us here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.